Hello, welcome back to another episode of the 100k Freelancer Club podcast, the show which helps you on your journey to becoming a high-earning freelancer. My name's Niall McCorn, and alongside me, as always, we've got Jacob Brickle. JB, how are you? Are you still sunburnt? That is a very good question, and um, fortunately, I am not sunburnt. I've moved on to the peeling <laughs> stage. Oh, uh, no. So, uh, yeah, currently uh, shedding my skin like a snake. But, uh, yeah, how you doing, mate? <laughs> it's not the first time you've been called a snake over the years, is it, to be fair? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> enough of the slide digs. As we often do here on the 100k Freelancer Club podcast, we love to feature guests. We love to hear from top earning freelancers, experts in their field. And that's exactly what we're going to do today because we've got a cracking guest lined up for you. Nick Kiriakides. He's a post-production artist. And if you've never heard of what that is before, then you're in the right place because he's going to explain all to us. Not only that, he's an award-winning freelancer who owns his own film company. He's worked with the likes of Adidas, Google and Estee Lauder, some massive clients. And he's also one of the top freelancers on a platform platform called Uno Juno, one of the UK's premier freelance platforms and the largest marketplace for elite creatives and tech freelancers. Can't wait to talk to Nick and he's joining us right now. How are you doing, Nick? Hey guys, thanks for having me on the podcast. Big fan of you guys. How are you guys doing? Yeah, we're very good. I'm sure you are as well, because even though it's been a tough year or so for a lot of freelancers, things have been absolutely flying for you. I guess the first question is post-production artist. Explain it to us. How does it work? Yeah, sure. Post-production being the digital side. So within post-production, you've got all these different subcategories. So one of them would be typically video editing. So a lot of people are really familiar with video editing now with, you know, the likes of Instagram and TikTok and all these filters and ways of trimming your clips. Essentially, video editing is putting together all this footage and telling the story. Uh, So that's one of the main roles I cover. I'm also what's considered a visual effects artist. So that's anything from like adding in lightsabers or explosions to films and all these kind of cool lens flares and things like that. Um, And I do a lot of kind of animation work and color grading. So color grading is where you just color films and make them maybe look more cinematic. Or if you've seen the film, maybe 300 or Matrix, they've got very specific colors to them. So that's probably a good example of just showing what you can do if you push the colors and, you know, really work on the grade. Um, So many, many roles and it really is expanding over the years. And there's just a few of them that uh, a post-production typically, uh, a post-production artist would typically cover. So multiple skills involved in that. It's almost quite an umbrella term. So what was the kind of first skill you learned or the first time you sat down at a computer? Because I guess you spend a lot of time in front of your laptop working away on it. What was the first sort of skill you learned, I guess, before we start the freelance journey? What was it that kind of turned you on to this line of work? What was it that gave you the bug, I suppose? That's a good question. I think the gateway kind of skill that got me into this was uh, video editing. And that was probably stemmed from me and my best mate used to make skateboarding videos when I was a kid. So one of my, I think it was like my 16th birthday, I, my, my parents bought me a digital camera, a photo camera that had this feature where you could film for 30 seconds at a time. So we had to kind of do some kind of skate tricks within that time limit and do like a, a big run. And I used to kind of take those videos and put special effects on them and edit them together uh, in kind of free software that anyone can get, especially nowadays. 
And uh, oh, I would love to get my hands on some of those clips. I bet they're incredible <laughs> and embarrassing from back in the day. You have to send them into yeah, us. It's like you've seen them, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, one day they might show up on the dark web somewhere, but they, they definitely were the inspiration for just experimenting. Like I used to be so excited going home and just cutting these videos together with like some kind of rock track and making it upbeat and adding just really irrelevant VFX that didn't make any sense, like an explosion when my mate landed kickflip or something. Um, but it was <laughs> really cool. Class. That was that really got me into it. Are we talking like Windows Movie Maker sort of stuff here, Nick? Yeah, there, there was Windows Movie Maker. There was one called ULead Video Studio and Pinnacle Video Studio. Uh, and then I kind of got into the harder stuff like Final Cut Pro 7, which is, uh, I believe, what the BBC used. So if we spin all the way back to the start of your freelance career, did you like leave university and come straight out of uni into a freelance role? Uh, did you have a job or did you, you know, work your way into it? Like on the podcast last week with Niall, where Niall's experience talks about um, he goes through some employment roles into some freelance roles at the same time and sort of juggles it. How did your freelance career actually start? And when was the first time you realized I am a freelancer? Yeah, I... It done exactly that. I finished a BA at uni, which was a really mixed degree, uh, which was covering kind of web design, film, animation, and photography. And I finished that course and I went straight into just applying for gigs online. So I, I wasn't really focused on getting a full-time job. I've never, I've never really had that personality to just work full-time on the same project or the same company. I just... I guess I'm one of those people, I love variety and I think a lot of freelancers want that autonomy and they want that kind of free life of just, you know, choosing when to work and who, for who to work with and in different countries and just have that, have that kind of control over their life in that sense. Was the was the idea of freelancing actually introduced to you at university? So I can imagine that you might have been working for some, you know, fake clients or potential clients in your studies and then did they develop into like paid side gigs whilst you were studying or was it something that you saw other people maybe peers or people older than you freelancing and you actually thought to yourself I want to do that it's a good question I I'd be honest I've never ever heard the term freelancing I, I heard of like the term self-employment and I think you guys actually mentioned that on the podcast uh, in one of the episodes where self-employed was thrown around but I don't know about you guys, but I associated that more with like maybe a builder or a plumber or someone who's self-employed. Yeah, 100%. Whereas in the creative field, I never, I never knew any freelancers myself. So I went home after getting my degree and I spent the whole summer working on a showreel of just kind of made up work because I had zero clients in my bank. And I sent this showreel out to various kind of job sites, which were kind of putting job posts that... They were saying they wanted a music video created and they wanted someone to just cut it together or they wanted someone to do visual effects for a little commercial they were doing. And I actually went for my first role was actually for a music video to kind of do some color grading, which back then I was so new to everything. I just kind of went for every job going and I got really close to the director. We had a really good kind of interview and he said, look, there's a film competition this weekend. I We both had to write this film in 48 hours, film it and edited it that entire weekend. Um, and I actually had food poisoning and it was like such a hard weekend to just kind of edit oh while being God. sick. <laughs> what was the um, suspect meal then, Nick? You have to reveal that. <laughs> oh, I can't remember what it was back then, but 
No, in my student days, probably pot noodle or something along those lines. Um, <laughs> Food poisoning from a pot noodle. Pot noodle classic. and Red Bull. It's like <laughs> student's diet. Um, and from that, we actually like won the film competition in the States and we got through to the following round and they gave us $500 to kind of just, you know, obviously bank or to invest that into the next film. And we just started making films together and I started freelancing with uh, that director that I met and we formed a company and... Since then, I was just kind of a freelancer in that sense. I just registered as a freelancer once I got to uh, the tax threshold. Yeah, I really like that. I like that idea of, you know, not knowing you're a freelancer and think that it's interesting that it kind of arrives for different people at different moments, the penny dropping about being a freelancer. Is that what you would suggest then to to maybe some younger freelancers, people who are in a similar position to what you've described, maybe fresh out of uni that do have some uni experience or, you know, educational experience under their belt to just try and say yes to everything? Because I've always found that in my freelance career, saying yes to something and figuring out how to do it at a later date at the very early embryonic stages of your freelance career is a good way to go because you can build up some good relationships with clients like what you've just described with your director there. Oh, totally. You've literally hit the nail on the head with every interaction, not even business interaction, is all about relationships. And it's one of the things that you don't learn at uni. You don't really have a module on, you know, this is how to build a great working relationship with someone or this is how to communicate effectively or you know how to how to be likable and all these kind of things that help you in life and I think these are things that I would really encourage any of the listeners if you're starting out or even if you're quite a seasoned freelancer just the best thing you could do is just build relationships with people and it doesn't have to be transactional and think oh I'm only going to speak to this person because they might be able to get me a gig it's it's just literally about being a good person and I can't tell you the amount of times I've been referred by other people who aren't even in the creative industry they've been like a friend of a friend is a director or they want you know this commercial shot and they need someone editing it it's all these connections really come from and they stem from key relationships we've spoken about how essential and how important it is and I think networking plays a massive part in every freelancer's journey and I'm glad you mentioned that because being a nice person doesn't cost anything. Uh, it's a very, very small investment to make. And life can be stressful as a freelancer, but I'm absolutely with you there. Sometimes just being a genuinely decent person um, does pay its weight worth in gold in the end. So 11 plus years now uh, as a freelancer, Nick, it's a long time and you've still got the hunger and you've still got the desire for it. We've spoken about when the penny dropped that you were sort of officially, I guess, a freelancer. When did things really start gathering momentum? Because we'll come on to it in a sec about the use of digital platforms and freelancer platforms online to get your name out there and pick up clients. But when was it you really start to to get some traction and realise that, yeah, this is a full time thing for me now? I think it's when I got a decent portfolio and a decent showreel that probably captured a lot more attention online where... You know, some of our videos, um, I'll give an example, actually. One of the first major gigs I had was a, a big music video for a band called In This Moment. And I, I had to kind of invest a lot of my post-student money into uh, to buying a computer just for that job because it was such a heavy project. And we kind of used these, what's called red cameras, which was brand new back in t- 2008. Um, and off the back of that video and, and kind of, 
learning so much and kind of experimenting with visual effects and a big name international brand which was like world renowned i think that kind of credibility of having these record labels on my cv and and when i'm sending out and applying for jobs and then and just asking you what have you worked on recently and you're showing something that's quite reputable and actually quite well known that kind of gained a lot of traction and it just it snowballed from there because i built so many more contacts off the back of that film set yeah i mean some of the show reels that i've seen from you are absolutely unbelievable but obviously the more experience you get the better they get just quickly on that do you think it's important for people when they're putting portfolios together and putting show reels together to have evidence of recent work because i know a lot of people that i've spoken to particularly students that are coming through in my industry the broadcast industry that continue to push show reels and demos and portfolios of stuff they did a long time ago and that's all well and good but I think sometimes as well you need to have evidence of, of recent work and showing what you've been up to in the more immediate term I should say because I think that that shows that you know you still got your finger on the pulse I guess. Yeah I definitely agree I think it's certainly a balance isn't it of just showing new work that shows that you're evolving you're a freelancer that is constantly you know you're getting employed and you're showing that by showcasing recent work and also work that is maybe in different directions work that you may be a bit more outside of your comfort zone or just isn't work that you've just done over and over again it's something that's a bit more innovative so it's totally well and good keeping in existing work that are maybe maybe a few years old but it stands the test of time and showcases a certain aspect of you i think it really comes down to your showreel and your portfolio is kind of exuding your personality but also your skill set so as long as each piece of work has significance and is in there for a reason, then it it is worth staying in there. What do you find difficult about the freelance life? Because we'll come on to it in a second about the amazing success you've had on platforms like you know Juno and some of the amazing clients you've worked with like Adidas and Google et al. What do you find the most difficult thing about being a freelancer? Because people listen to these podcasts and I imagine a lot of people that do are in the mindset of they love the idea of having a freelance lifestyle, being able to choose their own holidays, pick their own hours, work when they want, work with the clients they want, which all sounds great. But sometimes it isn't always as easy as that. So, you know, kind of taking the great things out of this, what do you find some of the more difficult things when it comes to freelancing? Yeah, I like the spin on this. Just not talking about all the uh, the ups of being a freelancer. I like the, the aspect of, yeah, what else are, are things to look out for? Um, I think it's two things. I think as a freelancer, one difficult thing is actually saying no to work. Saying Because it gets quite addictive when, if you're quite successful on these platforms or you have jobs lined up and you're getting kind of multiple offers from other people, it's quite easy to say yes to everything. And then what you find is you're a one-man band, to, you know, in the sense of being a freelancer, but you're actually taking on three or four jobs, which is more than what a full-timer would potentially do. So then you're kind of working day and night potentially to, to cater for these clients. Whereas the other flip side to that as well is, is kind of differentiating how do you want your freelance life to be? Like, are you a freelancer or are you a small business? And if you're a small business, you need to start thinking like a small business and start potentially outsourcing that work or thinking of the cost benefit of, is it worth taking on this client? Like, is it something that's gonna be good for my soul? Is it good for the portfolio? Is it something that's rewarding because, I don't know, I care about that project and it's like an environmental cause and I'm passionate about the environment. 
there's all these things I think you need to think about as a freelancer when you're saying yes or no to, to projects and to clients. Um, but the difficult thing is just knowing when to say no and when to say yes. Is that a gut feeling thing for you then? Now that you've done it for so many years, is that is that something that you kind of, you get a feeling about certain clients or a feeling about whether a project suits you and isn't quite right for you? Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of it is, is definitely a gut feeling and, and very instinctual on, you know, I think you can spot quite easily after a while red flags with certain projects or clients uh, just with the language they use and, and the way they reach out to you and the way they speak to you um, and the way they talk about the project if they're quite experienced with what they want. Um, you know, a clear telltale sign uh, for anyone who's listening who wants to kind of see if there's a client that could be potentially difficult is if a client comes to you and, and you're kind of listening to a pitch and they're not too sure what they want, that's that could be down to inexperience or a lack of an ability to communicate what they want. But usually it's a case of it's going to be a difficult project if there's no way to please that client and to get to the nuts and bolts of the finished product. Well, I think that's especially important in creative fields where there's no like actual set definition of, you know, 100% of what the project can be. Because even if you get the perfect brief as a creative, it's still, you know, within your power to, you know, build that the way that you see it, the way your mind projects the project, right? It's open to some kind of interpretation because of the nature of like the creative work that you do. Oh, totally. It is so, I mean, you think of creativity alone, it's so abstract and so open to interpretation. So to try and whittle down what someone says they want in their mind's eye and putting that down on paper or screen can be quite difficult but also it can be quite easy if there's a certain formula to these things and you're working with someone who's quite experienced as well uh, on both sides the client and the freelancer. I thought it was interesting how kind of at the start of the freelance journey it was make sure you say yes to everything to try and build that portfolio and build that evidence of work that you've done but as you kind of progress down the line sometimes saying yes almost on a mandatory basis can be quite detrimental sometimes to your career so I thought it was really important that we got that out there that sometimes you do have to flip the coin over and say no instead. Talking about saying no to clients I think one of the most important things or what I get asked a lot um, from the students at the 100k freelancer club especially those in the creative fields like graphic design, video production and uh, basically any field where there's the possibility of revisions how do you actually manage that as a freelancer? Because obviously when you're working on um, a project and you, you know, you're editing a video, a client can say to you, oh, can you change this? You do it, they send it back to you, can you change this? And they could give you essentially unlimited revisions. They could really push you, really squeeze you. And, and a lot of businesses are like that, especially if they're working on a small budget and they themselves, like you talked before, don't know what they want. They're going to try and squeeze inexperienced freelancers for every hour for you know everything they've got so how did you I mean at the start were you you know struggling with that with you know getting overflowed with revisions and people pushing you too far um, and if you progressed into being like better at managing that and just overall what do you think about offering revisions as a freelancer yes it's a super important point you brought up Jacob because revisions for a freelancer are a blessing and a con because to talk about almost a bigger topic which is so important is like how you price your jobs so to give an example if a client comes to you and says i want these visual effects uh, added into this commercial 
and there's seven shots that need to be worked on and they would essentially just give you the budget and say look this is what we have to spend this is 10 grand um, can you make it work and here's the deadline and that's what that's what's called a buyout so if you're going to be getting revisions that go on for months but you've in your head budgeted for that's going to take me about 15 days um, you're kind of maybe going over the day rate that you would have charged for that so revisions could be really tough especially if you're starting out because you may feel like it's quite hard to actually lay those ground rules in because you're new to the game so you might just keep doing revisions to just please the client um, but for anyone listening who is a bit further down the line or looking to just kind of hold their own ground it's really about putting these things in place from the beginning so before you have an engagement with the client to start the project I really recommend to depending on your relationship with them to either put a contract in place or have a platform like you know Juno which have contracts built in which says an agreed uh, terms and conditions there which says this is going to be for this amount of days this is what we expect this includes three revisions and that's it Let's talk about Uno you know, Juno then, seeing as you've just mentioned them there. They are one of the UK's premier freelance platforms and the largest marketplace for elite creatives and tech freelancers. So very much firmly up your street and that proven in the fact that you won their top freelancer of the year award, I think in 2020 and 2018. So congratulations, Nick, for those awards. Um, a job well done. Yeah, get the applause in there. I'll, I'll probably add some like cheering children in the background in post-production uh, on the podcast just to kind of amp it up a little bit more. Appreciate that. Obviously, online freelancer platforms and, and getting clients online is something we've spoken about on the podcast in previous episodes. We haven't really touched too much upon you know Juno. So I guess if you could just shed a little bit of light on what it's like on that particular platform, because they do do things slightly differently at you know Juno to other places like Upwork and Freelancer.com. And just in general, your experiences of picking up clients using online platforms. Yeah, I've, I've really signed up to almost any platform you can name, probably aside from Fiverr, Upwork and People Per Hour, the ones that were covered uh, in a previous podcast. Um, I think when it comes to midway or senior freelancers, you're in a different marketplace completely. And there's certain websites that cater for those kinds of people. And I think, you know, Juno for me, it's really been one of the the game changers where it it just offloaded so much of my admin time of having to look for clients where they have essentially kind of premium clients like you get you know I think I actually met Adidas through them I've done jobs for uh, ATP the Association of Tens Professionals and had work shown at the O2 and on TV and things like that um, all through this platform and the great thing is they're all kind of vetted clients and freelancers like a bit like Fight Club, like, you know, to get in, you kind of, there's only a certain amount of people that know about it. It's a bit of a secret. That's why when people say, you know, Juno, they're, uh, they're like, what did you say? So, so you know, Juno are, are really kind of a premium service and it's really easy to find work if you're uh, a midway or senior freelancer because you essentially have a list of clients there that say, I want this done by this date. Here's the skill set. Here's the, um, potentially the day rate they sometimes put in. The brief and you're literally good to go and what's amazing with their platform is they handle all of the contracting so all of the contracts all set up um, and they also have a 14-day payment scheme as well so no more chasing invoices for any freelancers that are listening sounds good to me check out you know juno it sounds like something that's been really beneficial for nick on his 
freelance journey and certainly something that we'll be checking out as well here at the 100k freelancer club definitely interesting what you said about there being sort of more tailor-made websites for different fields and and freelance expertises i suppose is is what i'm trying to say so yeah certainly you know juno is one of those which uh, will certainly prick the ears up of a few listeners for sure with what you do you're spending a lot of money on equipment so obviously your computer is a key tool but so are the you know the editing suites that you use the software that you buy how much money do you put into that in terms of reinvestment into your business in terms of keeping up to date with the latest equipment and keeping on top of the latest trends in software and video editing technology and all the rest of it because it's something which you'll probably have to deal with in your freelance area that other people such as myself and Jacob probably won't have to just quite as much yeah the gear is is a really interesting topic now because as we all know, you know the phone in your pocket is is actually incredible, and there's so much innovation and really cool-looking projects that you can do on literally your iPhone or any mobile phone. So, depending on the need, it really depends on where your film's going to live. Um, you know what, what's really incredible is that when I was starting out doing a lot of social campaigns, so a lot of the work I do is actually kind of Instagram and Facebook campaigns nowadays because there's just a huge amount of kind of budget and, and marketing put into these campaigns. And what you sometimes find is it's they, they would spend probably about 50 grand on a red camera, which is like a really high-end cinema camera, to then create content that is actually going to be only shown on your phone. And it's quite incredible, someone filming in such a high resolution, but it's only going to be shown on such a tiny display. And it for me, it really comes down to I mean, you might have heard the expression, all the gear, no idea. It's, it's, I would much rather, and I'm sure a lot of people agree, I'd rather hire someone who is using something like an iPhone or a low-cost DSLR and knows how to use that inside out compared to a student using a red camera. So it really does come down to your need, you know, your audience, where your final film is going to live and, and how it serves you. All the gear, no idea, sounds like me playing golf, but we'll leave that to I one side for the time being. literally just about to say that. I was going to say football though, but I thought, no, nah, I'll leave that out. He's had enough today. Um, <laughs> I got one more question for you on this topic though, Nick. Um, throughout your freelance career, when you're working on projects and you're looking at other freelancers, one, do you feel the need to constantly upgrade your gear to stay competitive? And also, do you budget it when you're working with clients? So, for example, do you, uh, for every invoice you take, do you put 10% towards um, future equipment or 10% towards maintenance of equipment? Or is that something that you just leave down to, um, like, pure chance? Yeah, both really good questions. I think to answer the first question, I would really encourage people to say that if they don't have the initial gear, but are kind of, they've got a really cool brief coming up and they're like, I want to get this camera. I've got to film on this lens and I've got to shoot this uh, music video. Then you can always just rent the gear out and you can just hire it out for two days or however it may take to shoot the video or, or you know, even an editing station. For now, people hire out uh, uh, Mac laptops on set and just download all their footage and then edit off that um, or any computer. So you can hire the gear just in the meantime, just to kind of get used to it and to buffer that into the cost. So for Jacob's second part of the question, I think that's so important as freelancers that most of us forget when we charge our day rate or project rate, 
to always include all of these things that you typically get when you're a full-time staff member. If you work full-time, you typically get the software. You might get like an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription. You might get insurance with that, sick pay, uh, you know, the, the technology. You might get a computer with that and a screen. All these things that you are using in your hard drives and SD cards that you mentioned there now, these are things that you need to buffer into your price. And it's super important. And I know so many freelancers that, that miss this out. And um, it's something I cover in detail in the, in the course that I've created. And that's something that is I would really encourage people to reevaluate um, everything that just makes up them as a service and as a freelancer. Yeah. And you know what? It's something that I thought about at the start of the podcast the difference between freelancer and self-employed and you know the self-employed makes you think of builders and carpenters and mechanics and I guess taking the mechanic example they charge for parts and labor when you take your car into the garage and they fix it they're not just charging you for the labor of them actually doing the work on the vehicle they're also charging you for the cost of the parts to get them into the garage and, and fix them to the car so it's kind of all in one it's all in one package the charge isn't it parts and labor so thought that's a really really good point actually i wanted to ask you about google and adidas how does someone who is listening to this podcast end up working for giants in the world of business like google and adidas how does that come about i know you mentioned you know juno a few moments ago but where does that stem from and and how does someone aspiring to reach that level take the steps to get there. Yeah, it's, I think it's a dream for a lot of people, right? To When you hear these kind of brands to, to work with them, and I, I still sometimes can't believe it. Like, you know, I've got an Adidas kind of brand footage in front of me and I'm, I'm like cutting it out there to put it out to the world. Um, I think for a lot of people, the, the good news is there's a lot of ways. And one of them is that now more than ever, it's so, so much easier because you might have heard the expression, it's not, uh, what you know, it's who you know. And, and, you know, with many tools like LinkedIn, for example, in a few clicks, you can tell who the head of hiring is at Nike or Google or Adidas. And you can contact the producers there or the head of post-production or, you know, the recruiting agents. That's such an easy way in about 10 minutes, you can just contact someone and send them your latest showreel and say, why they should hire you, why they should take you on for a project and pitch your ideas. Um, that's one really simple way. Another is something I'd encourage freelancers to do, and weirdly they don't seem to, not many people seem to do it, is hire a talent agent. So I've got a few uh, kind of talent agents that represent me and they essentially do all the legwork. Like when I'm on a project, they will look for the next clients for me and pitch you know, some projects to me and say, look, do you want to take on this one? If not, we've got this one. Um, so they kind of they have the contacts. They've spent years building these relationships with Google, with Adidas, with Estee Lauder, um, and that's a really quick way to get in as well without without too much effort. Yeah, and I'm I'm assuming these guys take because this is the first time I've ever actually heard of a talent agent for a freelancer. But I'm assuming they operate in a similar kind of way to the freelance marketplaces where they're going to be taking some sort of uh, commission from those projects, right? Yeah, it's a good point because some talent agents will take a fee off of your day rate and they're very transparent about it. It's not like they just sweep it under your eyes. Um, they'll, they'll kind of take a percentage on that day rate or that project rate and others actually buffer it into their cost. So they'll charge the client that fee uh, on top. So it doesn't take anything off your day rate. 
And Nick, just one last question for you um, before we start to end out the podcast. And that's that I met you here in the wonderful city of Barcelona. A uh, friend of a friend, um, Chris. Shout out to Chris if he's listening. Um, I'll be looking for him to DM me for uh, this shout out. But um, yeah, so you basically, you did the same thing as me, right? So you were based in England um, and then you just upsticked, moved to Barcelona. Um, one what made you do that like what, what what was in it for you like have you traveled before and was it just something you're looking for new experiences that's why you chose a new location other than england and two how did that actually impact your freelance career because for me it actually kind of dented my freelance career like for maybe say six months when i moved from england to barcelona some of my clients are a bit like yeah well you know am i really going to be able to contact this guy as much it's going to be difficult to go into like in-person meetings and all that sort of stuff so it did hinder me a little bit for about six months until i was able to you know steer it in the right direction again so uh just to recap that question um did it impact you at all when you moved and why did you move if i could be totally honest i love tapas so i had to get out here I had to get, <laughs> I hate the rain. I love the sun. It's cheap beer, cheap tapas. No, I, I really, yeah, just to, to kind of echo what Jacob said, just kind of, because I know he's a big fan of Barcelona and Spain as well. I I love the lifestyle here and I've, I've always had a dream to work remotely. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the term digital nomad. Um, and although I, I love traveling and I've, I've been so fortunate, I've, I've had jobs, uh, all around the world, really, just kind of like filming gigs and editing gigs. Um, I didn't want to be always on the move and I wanted a base. So I've always loved Barcelona. And as I set this up, this kind of vision in my head, about two years before that, I kind of slowly was getting the idea into my clients' heads of, you know, I could do this remotely and I could save two hours off my commute in London and work those extra two hours for you. So I'm giving more input, more output rather. And all from the comfort of my home with having, you know, kind of less travel time, less time on the tube and doing more time doing what I love and being creative. Um, so for me, it was actually a really easy transition because all of my clients strangely didn't want to shop around. And they, they I'd say, I'd say a hundred percent of them stuck with me. There was no one that really said, look, we need you in the office every day because essentially it didn't make a difference. If anything, I found massive benefits and I really pitched that to them because I invested in uh, a new Mac Pro, which cost the same as a Tesla, but it could render things like a Disney film. It could kind of, it's so powerful and fast that my gear was better than the ones that I was going to the studios that I was working at. Um, and I've got all the software and the, and the kind of plugins that I'm so used to. So it was a really easy transition. Um, so to answer Jacob's question, I guess it was more a case of, how I transitioned any of the clients to remote working with some amazing platforms I use, which automates um, my whole workflow essentially, where I would kind of save a film, it would upload it to this really cool website called Frame.io, and they can comment directly on the screen and draw exactly where they want something removed or retouched and taken out. And I get all this feedback in real time. And then I just kind of crack on with the comments again and, and send it over. And it's like we're in the same room. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. That's that's really interesting to hear that. Although I am fearful now the next time I'm in Barcelona, I'm going to have to brush up on my Spanish because you guys are going to be chatting away to each other and I'm going to be stood there saying, <laughs> tres cervezas, por favor, and that's all I'm going to be able to say. <laughs> that's all you need in Spain. That's all you an, need. an instant way to get to fluent Spanish is just to drink those free beers. And then, and then be, uh... <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll tell you what, before we let you go, on a podcast recently on the 100k freelancer club we spoke about some of the nightmare situations when it comes to pitching to clients maybe some of those embarrassing moments that you've had in your freelance career and you've been freelancing for over a decade now nick so there must be some locked away that you <laughs> that you didn't really want to share um but it's kind of a rite oh, of passage jacob said his embarrassing moment um is there anything that has maybe happened to you that's left you uh with a bit of a facepalm moment. Oh, he's too good. He's got Coincidentally, nothing. my mind's gone blank. <laughs> is, that, is that my subconscious trying to protect me from embarrassing <laughs> stories? I think so. I think I think we'll let him get away with it, eh, Jacob? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we'll have to get you on again in the future, just so you can spill the beans. Because right, I don't know if I trust enough, you about this one. If this gets a uh, hundred thousand views for the hundred k freelancer club, I'll come back on and reveal my deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what you were going to say we you were going to reveal then. I was like, this is a family podcast, so let's be very careful here. Um, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks so much Same for joining here. us. Um, really enjoyed chatting to you and learning the sort of inner workings of what you do and how you do it. Nick's a, a great guy. I implore you to go and check him out. I also implore you to go and check out You Know Juno as well. Um, if that's something you're interested in, then you can find Nick's services on there as well as on his website. And I want to jump in as well and say we cannot thank you enough for coming on this podcast, Nick, and sharing your experiences as a freelancer, giving your advice, and just being you know a great person to speak to here on the podcast. And I want to tee you up now, and uh, you can jump in and say a load of wonderful things about yourself in the courses that you actually offer, uh, because we know you have some fantastic, uh, fantastic content over on your website. I've gone through the whole course, and I was going through it. We both love it, and we do think it is an like it's an amazing addition to what we offer here at the 100k freelancer club as well so anybody looking to advance their career as a freelancer i highly recommend that you go over and check out nick's content i'll, I'll, I'll leave uh, the driver's seat to you now nick so you can just jump in and go crazy and promote everything that you do thanks so much i'm i'm blushing thank you so much for <laughs> the introduction and i'm really such it's such an honor to be here because as you know jacob i've been speaking to you for a while now and i'm such a fan uh, of what you guys are doing at the 100k freelancer club and i completed i kind of binged the podcast so i was <laughs> loving it so much I just you must be bored down. Like, <laughs> uh, lockdown time no I, it was really the the gym and walking everywhere i was going i just i kind of wanted to tune into the next episode so i really love your vision i genuinely um i wouldn't have come on the podcast if i didn't believe in what you guys were doing so really yeah keep it up guys and so then nick where can everybody go to find all this amazing course content and uh what is your website yeah so you could find my film company at nkfilms.co.uk and i've got the course company nk courses which is nkcourses.co.uk and all the relevant kind of hashtags are pretty much the same it's nk at nk courses and at nk films um and yeah just to give you a quick kind of background about the courses uh i finished my second course which is all about how to discover and win clients part of what i call the master the freelance mastery series so it's perfect if you're a freelancer listening here and you're looking to get into the film game and the video game 
Um, I'm using all of my secrets and tips and everything I've learned over 12 years uh, compressed into this course, which is going to be constantly updated. Um, and it also includes a lot of free tools that are to automate your freelancing life and, and hacks to get around things like kind of pitching to clients, briefing clients, how to price yourself, um, how to set up your editing projects, and they're all included in the courses. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we do hope to see you again sometime soon in another episode. And uh, yeah, if you're listening to the podcast still, as well as checking out Nick's stuff, you can head over to 100kfreelancerclub.com and sign up for our free audio course which is going to basically teach you how to ignite your freelance career and one last time make sure you go over and check out Nick's stuff because again this is the man that's picking up clients like adidas google so this man really does know his stuff so we uh we encourage you to go check that out and we will catch you in the next episode of the 100k freelance club podcast